Today's episode of The Greatest Stories Never Told is brought to you by Swell CBD Oil. The Taint That Swell's official brand of CBD oil. Now, your CBD is great for anxiety. Uh, functional imaging work coming out recently has actually showed that one epicenter of emotion, the amygdala deep within the brain, is quietened down with CBD. Uh, the amygdala is the threat detection system in the brain, and it's also helpful for insomnia, inflammation, brain injuries. A lot of UFC, NFL players, uh, you know, pro surfers have used it in the treatment of brain injuries. Uh, it's basically mother's milk in my opinion. I get a lot of relief from it. So yeah, just access Swell CBD oil through our Instagram page, swell underscore AUS, and book a consultation today. The mad. G'day Swellians, before we get into today's greatest story never told, just a bit of background on the man you're about to hear from, Shane Beaver. He's the father of former Rip Curl prodigy Dane Beaver, one of Australia's most promising surfers in the early noughties, a veteran of several search trips and Rip Curl films, contemporary of the likes of Mick Fanning, Nathan Hedge, Pancho Sullivan, Tamario Perry and so on. Dane's brother Tully, meanwhile, is one of the greatest bodyboarders of his generation, packing Mondo cones in that pioneering first wave of slab-fiend boogers. Uh, I should also say that Shane isn't necessarily the first to surf or discover the wave you're about to hear about, but uh, he and his two mates definitely found it for themselves, if that makes sense. Anyway, without further adieu, 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 I present to you Calling the Bluff. In 1974, three men set out on an epic journey in search of a perfect left in the West Australian desert. Their map was a beer coaster with a set of crudely drawn markings. They had enough supplies for a week. They thought it was funny at first, as the three men sat in the red dirt watching dust rising off their overturned van. The adrenaline and euphoria of their lucky escape was soon replaced by fear and dread. We were stuck out in the middle of nowhere and just hoped the bloody car would start again, you know. Otherwise, we were stuffed, remembers Shane Beaver. The year was 1974. He and two friends had set out three days ago on a road trip from Margaret River to an as-yet-undiscovered left-hand reef in the northwest Australian desert. They'd received the tip-off from a couple of Croatian sardine fishermen one boozy afternoon at a Margaret River pub. In strange accents, the fishermen recounted to Shane and his two mates a hellish trip up north in which they'd nearly perished at sea. After days of battling huge seas and a ferocious storm, they'd found a refuge in a majestic bay shielded by a big red bluff. They spent weeks there waiting for conditions to ease, but they never did. So they radioed the owner of the boat, who sent a Land Rover to pick them up on land. While they waited... The fishermen took an interest in what was happening on the reef running off the bluff. They'd seen waves before, heaps of them, but nothing like this. It was as if an invisible hand carrying a cement trowel had smoothed out the raw ocean and gently wiped it across the shallow ledge. It went on like this for days, they said, and they recalled being struck by the beauty and symmetry of what they saw. Back in the pub, Shane nearly choked on his beer. Fuck me, he said. Where is this place? He asked for a pencil and a couple of beer coasters from behind the bar 
and asked the fisherman to draw him a map. Shortly after, Shane and his two mates loaded up their Toyota Hiace with a pound of marijuana, a few single fins, enough food and water for a week, and set off for the desert. I think back on it sometimes, and I wonder where our minds were, recalls Shane. It didn't take them long to realise they'd seriously underestimated the roads. Around 14 hours north of Perth, they hung a left off the highway in the vague direction of the coast and onto a corrugated migraine of a track. The suspension in their high ace was already shot. They circumvented this problem by driving even faster, skimming across the bumps at 110 kilometres an hour. The vibrations grew so fierce inside the cabin, the screws holding the dashboard in wriggled out before the whole dashboard fell in the occupant's lap. Then they blew a tyre. Shane was driving when it happened, the force of the spinning wheel nearly snapping his wrists. We went straight up like Starsky and Hutch, he says. Boards and belongings ricocheted around the cabin as they flipped and slid across the dirt on their roof. Miraculously, no one was hurt, and as the dust settled, they realised another minor miracle had occurred. The cabin erupted in laughter as one of the boys looked down at his lap. We didn't spill the mole bowl, laughed Shane. The car had turned around us. As the terpenes ricocheted off their synapses, the three men sat in the dirt, chins in hand like Socrates waiting for the light bulb to go off. The point of leverage. Archimedes, someone yelled. After scouring the land, they found their lever, some sticks, and their fulcrum, a rock. After an indeterminate amount of grunting and sweating, they'd rolled the van back on its wheels. They turned the key, and it started. Now the question of the tyres. One of them was completely destroyed. Did they turn around and limp back to the highway to wait for a passing truck and a lift to the nearest town to get it repaired? Or did they press on to the wave? There was never a question. See, we were never thinking about getting out of there, says Shane. It wasn't on our mind. We had to get in there first, he says. Pointlessly wandering through the harsh, unending wilderness of Australia is one of the most enduring traits in our national character. From Burke and Wills to John Eyre and his Noongar mate Wiley, and Shane's favourite, the bush tucker man, Harry Butler. Australians have made heroes of themselves simply by walking off into the desert. No gold, no conquest, just a faint hope of finding their own slice of paradise near a billabong or a headland. By the 1970s, most of the good slices had already been discovered, but not when it came to surfing, not by a long shot. With the Vietnam War fresh in everyone's minds, an entire generation of young surfers were on the hunt and making the most of it. Shane's journey began in Narrabeen, on Sydney's northern beaches, but there were too many clowns in the water, he says, so he went north to Yamba and Ngari, where he crossed paths of the morning of the Earth crew. Shane even dated Michael Peterson's ex-girlfriend for a bit, but after getting another girl pregnant, he packed his panel van, strapped a cot to the roof, and took off across the Nullarbor for Margaret River. He had 30 bucks to his name. Back in the desert, with their Toyota Hiace back on its feet, minus one tyre, they made slow progress down the goat track. When it became little more than spin effects and sand dunes, they let the air out of the tyres and maxed out the revs. On day one, they made it three kilometres. Each bog used up precious fuel for the return journey, but they could hear the ocean, so they pressed on. Eventually, they reached the hill looking down at the bluff. That sight is as fresh in Shane's mind today as it was back in 74. On a bluebird day, they scanned a cobalt sea adjacent to a red cliff 
and what looked like a perfect offshore fan two-footer running along the reef. On closer inspection, it was more like six to eight, and pumping. They'd found a jewel in the desert, but the boys quickly realised there was an element of fool's gold to their adventure. When you're out there, you realise it's not just a pretty place, it's a breathtaking place too, says Shane. If you get lost or something happens, you can die out there real quick, and nobody will even know you've been out there. The van stayed parked on the hill for the next three months, where it came to be known as the Hilton in honour of the hotel of the same name, a place where you'd go for some alone time or to masturbate in the comfort of a bed. For the most part, they lived in the caves near the beach. I didn't wear clothes for two months, says Shane. Their diet consisted of fresh lobster and seafood fished from a teeming ocean or rabbits shot with their 22 caliber rifle. Drinking water was something they'd brought in abundance, but they collected more by collecting condensation from plastic bags and containers. As they fossicked around their surroundings over the coming weeks, they realized they weren't the first to seek refuge in this bluff and its caves. They found evidence of the local Boingu tribe in the form of a fishing trap fashioned from stones. They replaced the sticks at the mouth of the enclosure and found it as useful as ever, trapping dozens of fish as the tide receded and left them stuck in the pool. For kicks, they surfed, ate, played cards, fished and smoked a pound of marijuana between them. They went to sleep listening to the thump of giant red kangaroos bouncing across the ridge and the crack of sets pitting along the point. And the sky, says Shane. You couldn't put a star on a stick and push it up into the sky because there was no room for it. There was just stars from horizon to horizon. You'll never see anything like that sitting around the suburbs, he says. One morning they woke to a fishing boat moored in the bay. Shane paddled out to them with a bag of lobsters and was rewarded with an ice-cold beer plus a few more for the boys on the beach. That was unreal, he says. There was one thing they'd yet to resolve, however. The question of who was going to get the tyre fixed. Eventually they'd have to go home and it would be best if they had four working wheels. By their estimates, the highway was at least a couple of days walk. After drawing straws, Shane was left with the task. It went on for two days. You're going, you got to get into town, he says. Yeah, right, and off I went. It took him a day and a half to reach the highway. He spent the night sleeping under the stars with the tyre as his pillow. The nearest town was Carnarvon, about four hours south in those days, and he flagged down a lift without too much effort. On the way back, he lucked out and scored a ride with a mining truck on its way to a nearby mineral sand deposit. After three months, they were ready to leave. They'd run out of pot and were ready for a hot shower. Their hair was so caked in salt, it would snap off like a piece of carrot, says Shane. They packed up their belongings and walked up the ridge to the Hilton to start the car. They turned the key and the battery wheezed, then died. They looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders and walked back to the cave. At worst, all three of them would have to make the hike back to the highway. But a stroke of good luck prevented that. Vroom, vroom, vroom. What the bloody hell is that, recalls Shane, of a startling noise that came over the hill one day. When they saw what was making it, they didn't know whether to run or cheer. It looked like something out of Mad Max, a Land Rover or some such vehicle covered in animal skulls came roaring over the ridgeline. It was like a travelling butcher shop, says Shane. It was also a fitting accessory to the specimen in the driver's seat. He wore a beard down to his navel, 
wind cracked, sun ravaged skin, and dreadlocks before people even had dreadlocks, says Shane. A wild man. Wild, he says. The wild man was stoked. He came jogging down the hill to say good day. As the story goes, he'd been travelling the back roads across the seemingly infinite southern and western coastlines of Australia for at least five years, probably on the run from the law or conscription. The boys were careful not to ask why. He was just happy to have someone to chat to. For two straight days they yarned, most of which came from the hermit. He was a lovely bloke, but he couldn't stop talking, says Shane. It was like he hadn't spoken to someone in a year. That might very well have been the case. In his car were all kinds of bric-a-brac, including a collection of photographs he'd taken with an Instamatic camera, the best of which featured a tremendous orange dust storm blowing off the cliffs of the Great Australian Bight and into the ocean. It was like a big wave going out to sea, says Shane. The hermit was also a handy bush mechanic who had everything they needed to get their car back on the road. They shook hands, said see you Cobb, and he burned off up the ridge, leaving the boys to limp back to the highway and continue their lives.